Welcome to the Autism Empowerment Podcast, your source for acceptance, enrichment, inspiration, and empowerment in autistic and autism communities worldwide. Wherever you identify in your autism or autistic journey, Autism Empowerment is here to meet you along the way. We are an autistic-led podcast, 501c3 nonprofit charity, and publisher of Spectrum Life magazine. In today's episode, we're finishing our three-part series on autism diagnosis disclosure. We'll be focusing on the pros and cons of autism disclosure for adults, when to tell, why, and how. We'll be looking at this in the context of health, education, relationships, and employment. And we're back on the air. Hi there, Karen. Hello, Johnny. How are you faring this fine day? I'm doing really amazing because I'm here with you. Aw, you're super sweet. Hello, podcast friends. Thank you for joining us here today for the Autism Empowerment Podcast. My name is Karen Krejcia, and I'm the executive director and co-founder of Autism Empowerment and one of your regular hosts. I'm here with my husband, John Krejcia, who's our program's director and other co-founder. John and I are partners in podcasting and partners in life. Today, we're finishing our three-part series on autism diagnosis disclosure. In part one, which was episode 10, we discussed the important topic of sharing an autism diagnosis with a child. In part two, which was episode 11, we discussed disclosing a child's autism diagnosis to family members and others in the community. Today's show is geared towards adults on the autism spectrum who are wondering when it's appropriate to disclose their diagnosis to others and how to do so. There's a lot we'll cover here. So for now, I'm going to turn this over to John, who will be asking questions and helping monitor our time together. I'm happy to keep an eye on the clock today and keep us on track. I know today's topic is very important and has a lot of meaning. In the last two shows, we focused around children and disclosure. Why are we talking about adults and disclosure? And what areas are we going to talk about today? About eight years ago, I was involved in an autism mentoring book project. It was called Been There, Done That, Try This. The book identified the top 17 issues that caused the most stress to adults on the autism spectrum and then provided mentoring advice in each section from a variety of different autistic viewpoints. Disclosing an autism diagnosis was on that list of 17 and it resonated with 79% of the respondents who had participated in the initial research. We know that there are a lot of adults out there that are having challenges with how, when, and why to disclose their diagnosis. It's something they're going to be dealing with, not just once in their life, but in many different contexts and situations. So we can't cover every personal situation in this show, but we want to be able to provide adults out there who are listening support. What we're going to do today is give an overview, including why or why not to tell and who to tell, questions to consider in the disclosure process, We're going to talk about differences between passive, reactive, and active disclosure and going over contextual situations in which you may wish to disclose. We'll also include some questions for you to think about and some suggestions before you actually go through with the disclosure process. Because there's going to be a lot of content in this episode and we want you to remember the takeaways, we're going to include a transcript and additional resources and links in our show notes. I'm sure that's going to be really helpful for people because I know that we're going to be covering a lot of things. So first of all, generally speaking, why should a person tell other people? So speaking here as an adult on the spectrum and speaking to you out there who are adults on the spectrum, we've likely been in situations where our social quirks or idiosyncrasies or some of our behaviors that are related to our neurology 
made other people misunderstand or feel uncomfortable or perhaps even judge us. We may not have even known that we were autistic, but we knew that we were somehow different and what we did was affecting somebody else in a certain way. If you're going to require a level of accommodation, support, patience, or understanding in a particular situation, telling someone about your diagnosis can often make this happen and may smooth things out for all involved. There may be times when full disclosure may be needed. There's often times when partial disclosure will suffice, and there's quite a few occasions when you don't need to disclose at all. So that makes sense. It's situational on when and how you need to disclose. What are some of the general things to consider before deciding whether to disclose or not to disclose? It's not necessary to tell everybody that you meet or know that you're autistic. It's a very personal decision. And you need to be authentic with yourself. We're all on a lifelong journey, and that includes how we feel about our relationship with autism. Maybe we've fully embraced it, but a lot of us still have some hangups with it. Maybe we use identity-first language, I'm autistic, or maybe we don't feel quite comfortable with that because we've been bullied or felt stigma in our life. It's one of those things that you're going to have to really think about yourself because if we've had negative experiences related to autism, we may be hesitant and we might be afraid to give people a reason to use our diagnosis against us. It also depends on how long ago we might have been diagnosed. Were we diagnosed in childhood or was it something that happened later in life? That context can be really important if most of the relationships we have developed have been with people that were prior to diagnosis. Are those relationships strong enough to be able to disclose? Things to think about also include our race, our ethnicity, gender, culture, the different intersections of our identity, including where we grew up and our family dynamics. These things that happen in our formative years and other aspects of our life experience do come into play here as well. I know, Karen, when we were first talking about doing this particular show, one of the things that you said to me was, once you disclose, you can't unring that bell. Should people consider that as well? That's a really important thing to think about because a lot of us on the spectrum have challenges with being impulsive. So if we're having a really good day, we might go, I feel great about disclosure. I'm going to tell everybody. And then if we're having a really bad day, we might wish that we hadn't done that, but we can't take it back. So I think it's something that you're going to want to really have a heart-to-heart with yourself about and write out. And we'll give some tips and some strategies near the end of the show about that. But yes, that's a critical thing to think about because you can't unring that bell. So in our last show, we talked about passive, reactive, and active disclosure. So I want to touch base with that and how it relates to adults. I'd like to talk about all three. I'd like to first start with passive disclosure. Passive disclosure is a technique that compensates for the fact that autism is often an invisible disability or a hidden disability. It's not obvious to people that you might be autistic. I use the word passive here because we don't directly approach someone regarding our diagnosis when we're disclosing passively, but we still communicate in some way that there may be differences in interactions. So when we were doing this show and describing parents disclosing their children's diagnosis passively, we used examples of bringing visual supports or fidgets or noise-canceling headphones out in the community. These types of things symbolized that someone's child might be processing the world a little bit differently 
and helped prepare other people should their child do something that might be considered unexpected. With adults, you might be disclosing passively by using earbuds or sunglasses inside or maybe wearing a hoodie over your head. Now, I realize that is something that a lot of people do, but it's kind of an example there. One of the bigger ones would be shirts, clothing, and a lot of adults will do something where they will wear clothing that identifies themselves with nerd or geek culture. Kind of like Star Trek or Star Wars. There's a lot of people that still like these things that are not autistic, but there is oftentimes an overlap between nerd and geek culture and adults on the spectrum. People that are more comfortable disclosing their diagnosis might directly wear a shirt that says autism on it. Some people that are comfortable with their diagnosis and advocacy may even get a tattoo. Now, this can be subtle, like a rainbow infinity symbol. If you're really into autistic culture and follow a lot of that stuff online, that's popular with a lot of autistic adults. Some adults like the gold symbol the periodic table, AU, or it could be something else that's symbolic to them. That's some good information. The next one I'd like to go over is reactive disclosure. Reactive disclosure happens when you thought you could get by with not disclosing, or you were hoping that your passive disclosure strategies worked, but something unusual or inappropriate happened, and then that required some sort of additional explanation, understanding, and possibly accommodation. In our previous show, we used an example of a child being in a restaurant and running over to someone's table and taking their food. I'd hate to see an adult do that. It's not so fun when your child does it either. So when might that come to play with adults? One example might be a meltdown. You're sensory overloaded, you're in a particular setting, and maybe you burst out or you scream or you swear or you do something that shocks the people around you. And if it's a job, you may need to say something to someone or you might lose your job. If it's a relationship that you're cultivating or a dating relationship, you may need to say something in order to give an explanation and get understanding. Rudeness is another thing that happens oftentimes. A lot of us on the spectrum can be blunt. Or direct. Particularly if we're stressed and we may not recognize it. We may not understand that someone may not need to know that their breath stinks or that the dress that they're wearing makes them look fat, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek there. But in all seriousness, being on the spectrum doesn't give you an excuse for being a jerk. If you're rude or blunt on a regular basis, it may cost you relationship and job opportunities. So there may be a time when you may need to have an explanation for that. So another example of reactive disclosure would be if you're driving a car and you got pulled over for speeding. You don't want your autistic behaviors to potentially communicate that you're dangerous. For people of color, this is especially so, right? They have extra things that they potentially have to worry about. Being able to somehow disclose to an officer, not as an excuse for behavior, but as a reason why you might not look them in the eye or you might have trouble communicating is an important thing to do. And there's something called the wallet card which people can keep in their wallet for just this type of situation. And it explains that the cardholders on the spectrum and that autism is a social communication disability. It has on that card, because of my disability, I might have certain types of challenges. The card's really good to be able to have because it indicates that the cardholder wants to cooperate with either the policeman or 
firemen or first responder, those types of situations. It gives them that opportunity to be able to get some understanding in a situation where they might not be able to find the words to do so. That's not a get out of jail free card. If you do something illegal, you're still going to have to account for that. Last but not least, let's talk about active disclosure. So active disclosure is the most common type of disclosure that we're going to be talking about in this show. That's when either verbally or in writing, you're telling someone about your diagnosis to secure an accommodation or get understanding or patience in a given situation. The key with more active disclosure is to do it ahead of time whenever possible and to highlight how your relationship with autism is going to affect your behavior or participation in some sort of setting, activity, or situation. That disclosure would also note accommodations that might help you be more successful in that situation. That's a perfect segue to my next series of questions, situational disclosure. I'd like to first talk about disclosure around your medical or dental care. So when you were first diagnosed on the spectrum, you were diagnosed by likely a psychologist or a psychiatrist. When it comes to things like mental health therapy, it's important for those types of practitioners to know so that they can best support you based on your neurology. But for most medical and dental practitioners, telling them that you're autistic without any other sort of explanation on what that means and what your needs are can be confusing because autism looks different from person to person. So when we're talking about disclosure around medical and dental care, it's good to think about in terms of accommodations. For example, are you the kind of person that has sensory overload and would benefit from the lights being turned down? Are you the kind of person that would prefer an appointment first thing in the morning or last thing in the day so that there's less people in the office? Would it be useful to have a support person or to bring in a bottle of water? You want to think about these things in advance of a crisis because when you're in extra pain, you're going to have extra anxiety. There's tools out there that can help you with this, and one is called the Aspire Healthcare Toolkit. It's at autismandhealth.org. What that does is it gives you tools to be able to plan your advocacy. They have a making appointment worksheet, symptoms worksheet. They have different checklists on what to bring to your appointments and how to handle after-visit worksheets. They also have an accommodations tool where you can actually fill out a report based on the types of accommodations that would be important to you, and then you can print that out in advance and you can bring it to your practitioner, or you can print it out and then disclose parts of it. It's up to you. For me, tools like this were incredibly important when I was diagnosed with pneumonia and then a few years later, most recently when I was diagnosed with COVID. I wasn't in a frame of mind to be able to talk intelligently about autism or my diagnosis. I just knew that I was going to be struggling with certain things and having these types of tools could help me advocate. That sounds like a fabulous tool. We'll make sure that we have that on our show notes so people can download that and check that out. So I wanted to move on to relationships. I know we're going to talk about these briefly, family, friends, and dating. There's so much to cover in all of these different areas. So just briefly, let's start with family. Okay. So life is really messy, isn't it? It can be. And family dynamics are often messy too. This is going to be a little different depending on where you are in life. If you were diagnosed later in life, it's going to look different than if you were diagnosed as a child where you probably have already had disclosure to family. 
But of course, you may be thinking about disclosing to a boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse, that kind of thing. And also disclosing to your own children someday. But if you were diagnosed later in life, your parents may not know, your siblings might not know, other aunts and uncles, extended family might not know, and you'll have a decision on whether or not you want to tell them. Since autism tends to run in families and has a genetic component, research shows, other family members may be on the spectrum too, diagnosed or not. So you have to think about how your disclosure may impact them and your relationship with them. You might find that it could be quite helpful in identifying other family members as on the spectrum if it's something that they might feel comfortable with. You have to be sensitive to these kinds of things. When you're disclosing about yourself, it isn't a situation to be trying to out someone else's kid or to try to out a parent or those types of things. It's more about disclosure about yourself. I could see how that could help build family bonds as well. In our last show, we talked about disclosing a child's diagnosis to others. And we went into a pretty decent section on disclosing to parents, the child's grandparents. You might want to go back and listen to that show in terms of disclosure to family because there's all sorts of different feelings and emotions that potentially come into play. And we're not going to go into that in this show. But remember that when you choose to make that disclosure to family members, if they're people that you're going to be seeing on a regular basis, you might want to have some information about autism that you feel comfortable sharing that makes sense to them as well. Because there's a lot of information out there and you want to give them information that is relevant to you and your situation. Next, we're moving on to friends. A lot of us on the spectrum have a really difficult time navigating friendships and relationships. We want to have friends, or we want to have at least a close friend, but sometimes it can be difficult to determine what our real relationship with another person is. So when it comes time to disclose, we may have a tendency to overshare, and that could intimidate people. And depending upon their age or their level of maturity or their life experience, it might be too much. Because I could see that where you're trying to determine if a person is a true friend or just an acquaintance. If you've never had a true friend, how do you know what that is? Is it somebody that's going to be there for you in an emergency? Are they going to check on you if you've gone off the grid for six weeks? Or are they just looking for something because you can do something for them? And then there's lots of friends who are like acquaintance type friends. Maybe you play Dungeons and Dragons with someone, but you don't really get together and hang out other than that. Or you have friends that you talk about certain hobbies with and they like you and you're friendly with them, but you wouldn't necessarily be getting into a heart to heart conversation. So when it comes to this topic, it's very contextual, I would imagine. It's very personal and it's contextual. I would suggest that if you're older and you were diagnosed later in life and you've had a close friend you've been friends with a long time and you've been through a lot of ups and downs with and you know that that person would be there for you, then they're going to accept you. If you know that you have a friend who's going to accept you for who you are, where you're at, then that would be somebody to potentially disclose to if you feel that it's going to benefit and enhance your relationship. Now, if the disclosure goes poorly and the person doesn't want to be friends with you anymore, then perhaps that's an indication that that's not the kind of friend that really would have been good for you anyway, because you deserve better. You deserve to have friendships with people that accept you for who you are. And are there for you through thick and thin, ups and downs. Right. 
So women may find it easier than men to disclose because it's generally easier for women to talk about their feelings. I typically have two feelings, hunger and sleep. (laughs) Is sleep a feeling? (laughs) Or tired, I should say. Sleep is a mood. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it has to be something that you feel comfortable with. For example, I know a lot of young adult men who would never feel comfortable disclosing to their friends particularly if they grew up being bullied or if they grew up hearing that autistic was a slang word for something bad, they're not going to want to disclose to their peers. Absolutely. So it really is dependent upon the person. I wish I could give you a specific answer, but we're going to share some questions for you to ask yourself later on in the show to help you determine some of these intricacies, some of these nuances. That would be very helpful, I think, just in all of these different circumstances. Let's go on to our next section. This is one that we don't have to worry about very much anymore, is dating. Yeah, John and I have been married for over 28 years. Half of that, we didn't know I was on the spectrum, but I still had a lot of the weird quirks, right? So there was a lot of social faux pas and misunderstandings and things we just had to organically work through. Well, then you add in my neurology being dyslexic. Mm -hmm. We're neurodiverse, but this isn't about us. This is about you, right? So dating. If you're out there looking to date another person, when first dating, most people don't mention their diagnosis. It would be quite rare, right? Because the thing is that autism is on a spectrum and people are diverse and unique. And if you've met one person with autism, you've You've met met one one person person with with autism. autism. So if you're on some sort of dating website, you probably will not include that in your profile unless it's a neurodiverse type of dating site. Casual acquaintances don't need to know, and it might just be kind of awkward to dump it on them. If you're part of a neurodiverse social club or a group or an autistic support group, well, it's not a big deal because very likely the other people there are going to be autistic too. Dating someone within that group, disclosure really isn't a big thing. To that point, a lot of autistic people have a sense for others who might be autistic. So even if you don't disclose, if you happen to find someone that is similar to a neurology, they may just know. So that's something to think about. Close romantic relationships that you want to develop into something long term. You're going to want to disclose at some point because you shouldn't be ashamed of who you are. Your authenticity is important. But how to go about doing that can be very fearful because you don't want to lose that relationship. As I mentioned before, when it comes to close relationships, including romantic ones, if someone doesn't accept you for who you are, which includes your autistic neurology, then they're not going to be the right life partner for you. But disclosing this may be a very anxiety-provoking thing, so you might want to have external feedback from someone who knows you that you might be able to practice with and who can give you honest and supportive feedback. If you're in therapy, that might be your therapist. If you have a friend who already knows that you're on the spectrum, it might be that person. Practice, 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 right? And we'll go over that later. (laughs) The next area I'd want to be talking about is disclosure in higher education. Could be either a college, university, or some type of trade school. Are there protections in college like students have under an IEP? Once a student is out of high school or out of a transition program from high school, they need to become their own advocates. The Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, also known as the IDEA, 
that no longer applies. That only applies up until age 21 unless a student graduates and leaves the school system sooner. What comes into play now is the American with Disabilities Act and Section 504 of the Vocational Rehabilitation Act. We're not going to go into those laws in great depth as that can be a show in and of itself. However, we will include links to both in the show notes so that you can read up on it and see how it pertains to you. From an educational standpoint, though, these laws are designed to protect individuals with disabilities from disability-related discrimination and to ensure that as a student with a disability, you're not denied access to appropriate services or supports that could be necessary to meet your needs or would be available to students without disabilities. One of the key differences between the protections of IDEA if you were a student who may have been on an individualized education program or a 504 plan in high school, is that it's a shift from entitlement services to eligibility. To access the assistance of a state's Department of Disability or a vocational rehabilitation program or other services as an adult, you have to prove eligibility according to the rules and requirements of that program. The same is true when a young adult wants to access supports at college. So what are the options? Basically, there's three paths you can choose. One, don't disclose anything. You can enter into the school system. You never have to disclose. Just recognize you won't get any special academic accommodations. However, you still have the same access to counseling, tutoring, or other services or programs that the school may offer. The second choice would be to disclose on a case-by-case basis. You might want to disclose to a specific professor or a teaching assistant or someone you felt could understand you or work with you better if they knew. The third option would be to disclose formally. And in order to do so, you'll need to bring evidence of your diagnosis to the Office of Disability Services on campus. If you're eligible, you can then arrange for accommodations. All colleges are required by law to provide certain supports and services to students with learning disabilities. Typical accommodations which are easier to get include use of note takers for class lectures, making audio recordings of lectures, use of a laptop computer in the classroom, and taking exams in a distraction-reduced room. More difficult to get might be extended time on papers and projects. This is something that would have been very common in high school, but not so much in college. It's typically not given on an ongoing basis, but it may be allowed, for example, if you had an acute medical or psychological episode, something along those lines. Course waivers and substitutions, a college may choose to give these, but they're not required to. And then alternative exam formats, such as an oral exam versus a written exam, colleges typically don't grant this. What is provided is going to depend on the college and your actual needs as a student, which is going to differ depending upon the type of class and your abilities. Yeah, but I've heard stories where professors aren't providing accommodations even with a disclosure. Yes, and it really does depend upon the situation. And students may not understand specifically what accommodations that they're allowed to have. Remember, it's not an entitlement situation. It's an eligibility situation. So you want to approach things from a positive advocacy perspective. You don't want to demand something or say you're entitled to something because of your disability. A better approach is to explain that you're really looking forward to their class 
and you want to do the best you can. And in order to do so, a certain type of accommodation might be really helpful. That's a good suggestion. Another part of college life is when you get together with friends and also roommates and classmates. Can we touch on that a little bit? Absolutely. So whether or not you disclose your diagnosis through an Office of Disability Services, that disclosure on campus is really a separate and personal decision. A lot of students keep their diagnosis hidden from fellow students, while others might speak openly as an autistic student, perhaps even in the context of sharing their perspectives of a person on the spectrum in a class. We spoke to a college-age student before the show about this. This person made a decision to disclose to the Office of Disability Services, but not to disclose their diagnosis to classmates or roommates or other people on campus. We asked why, and they told us they had been diagnosed when they were a child and had gone through an IEP process in school. They'd seen a lot of reactions and bias that people had in relation to disabilities. Even though there's autism acceptance and awareness education out there, their impression was that people still didn't have a really good understanding of autism. They said that there's still this idea with a lot of their peers that people with autism are either people that are severely impacted with intellectual disability or there's some sort of autistic savant who has these amazing skills, these splinter skills. And that really didn't fit them. So they described it as a little bit of a dance where they would practice advocating for themselves, but it would be selectively or situationally. For example, I tend to get a lot of headaches with bright lights, so I sometimes wear sunglasses inside. Or if they were going to the cafeteria, certain smells or noises annoy them. So Would it be possible to sit further away? That kind of thing. When it comes to disclosure, it is such a personal type of thing. As far as the roommate situation goes, generally speaking in dorms, they have roommate matching questions. And you want to fill those out in advance as completely as possible, particularly if you have preferences on certain habits where you can lean into what works for you and what doesn't. The last area that we're going to talk about is employment. Within the autism communities, unemployment and underemployment are huge issues. What are some of the protections the people have? This is such a tough issue, John. So many people within the autism community are looking for work, and it's so difficult to find work. In fact, in that book that I mentioned earlier, 83% of the people that participated in the research said that finding and keeping a job was one of their top stressors. Oftentimes, people get stuck in the interview and hiring process. They're not sure whether or not they should disclose on their applications. And sometimes employers ask questions on applications or in interviews that are illegal, and that becomes an incredibly stressful, what do you do in that type of situation? I want to talk briefly about the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. We mentioned this briefly before, and we're going to include it in the show notes, but I want to mention it in relation to employment because this is where it's going to come into play quite often. The American with Disabilities Act, also known as ADA, is a civil rights law that prohibits discrimination against individuals with disabilities in all areas of public life, including jobs, schools, transportation, and all public and private places that are open to the general public. The ADA became law in 1990. 
The Rehabilitation Act is pretty similar. It prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability, but this is in relation to programs that are conducted by federal agencies in programs that receive federal money. So how is disability defined in this context? So both acts, which are federal laws, define a person with a disability as somebody who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. What you need to know is that if you have an autism diagnosis, that qualifies. Is there anything else important to know here? The ADA applies to state and local governments and to private employers with 15 or more employees. Title I under the ADA Act is designed to help people with disabilities access the same types of employment opportunities and benefits available to people without disabilities. When you're going through an interview process, employers have to provide reasonable accommodations to qualified applicants or employees. A reasonable accommodation would be any modification or adjustment to a job or work environment that would allow an applicant or employee with a disability to participate in the application process or to perform essential job functions. That being said, a person must be qualified for the job. However, each individual person needs to decide whether or not to disclose disability information, and if so, what information to disclose. So when would this come into play for adults on the autism spectrum, where disclosure would be taken into consideration? If you're thinking about the whole employment process, any organization that's required to abide by the ADA cannot discriminate against a qualified individual on the basis of disability in regard to job application procedures, the hiring, advancement, or discharge of employees, employee compensation, job training, as well as other terms and conditions and privileges of employment. So essentially that whole employment process. process that makes sense. So what are some of the primary ways that someone on the autism spectrum might look for a job? So there's three. The first would be vocational rehabilitation, which is a state agency that helps people with disabilities in their employment process. The second would be employment agencies. And then the third way would be looking on their own. So let's go over all three. Let's start with vocational rehabilitation. Vocational rehabilitation is a state agency that helps people with disabilities and veterans to look for work, to regain employment, that kind of thing. They contract out and partner with different organizations and businesses to help develop employment opportunities. So there's a whole application process that goes around that. And if you're interested in vocational rehabilitation services, we'll put links to that in the show notes. A couple little things that would be helpful to know is that if you go through VR, you may get to choose an employment agency to work with, and you may have the opportunity to work with a job coach. A job coach is somebody who specializes in helping people with disabilities learn and accurately carry out job duties. For someone on the spectrum, this might mean that they may also help you with the interpersonal skills necessary to work in the workplace. They might practice interviewing with you. They may help you with your resume and talking about disclosing your diagnosis, those kinds of things. So next are employment agencies. Can we just briefly talk about that? Employment agencies are companies that are contracted to hire and staff employees for other companies. There's a number of different kinds. It might be public, operating on a federal, state, or local level, or it could be a privately owned organization. I used to work in one of these prior to autism empowerment. 
and we help place people in different technical and clerical positions. In an employment agency, the positions that are offered are often temporary, contract-based, part-time, or what's called temp-to-hire, where you might start out as an employee temporarily for 90 days, and if they like you and you like them, you may get an invitation to become a full-time employee. The agency typically keeps a file for each employee or their candidates, noting what their skills are and their work history, and that helps them match employees to new assignments. Many sectors outsource their recruiting to employment agencies as it helps companies simplify the hiring process for entry-level and mid-level jobs. So this is often a really great foot in the door for somebody who might be looking for temporary or entry-level type of work but have skills in a certain area. They can also offer employers and employees a little bit more flexibility that permanent work arrangements do not. One area I want to talk about a little bit more in depth is searching for a job on your own. So even if you go through a vocational rehabilitation program or an employment agency, it's not guaranteed that they're going to be able to find a job for you. Oftentimes, you still need to look on your own. And so that's often the most common way that people go when they're searching for jobs, even if they have these other oars in the water, so to speak. What you need to know here is that under the law, an employer is not allowed to ask disability-related questions until after it makes a conditional job offer to an applicant. Once a conditional job offer is made, the employer may ask disability-related questions as long as this is done for all entering employees in that job category. So what are some of the pros and cons about disclosure and employment? I'd like to get real here for a moment. I used to work in the employment industry for a number of years, and I saw a lot of people come through that were kind of like me. They didn't disclose their diagnosis because this was back in the 90s, and they didn't know. I didn't know. But they were quirky. They were a little bit different. You could tell that they were going to have some social challenges in the interview process and potentially in the workforce, too. When I would coach these individuals to interview I would say to them that you need to stress the skills and qualities that are going to make you an awesome fit for the company. You need to let them know why they should hire you. When you're in a job interview, you don't want to give them reasons to not like you. You don't want to lie. So to some people on the spectrum, that means you need to disclose. But remember, you don't have to disclose. You're not lying if you don't disclose during the interview process. If it makes you feel more comfortable during an interview or a conversation because you're not hiding anything, okay, you might want to disclose if you feel that the person that you're with you can be comfortable with. If it provides you an open conversation for how your disability may affect your work, that could be a positive reason to disclose. If you know that the company might be autism-friendly or disability-friendly, you might feel safer to do so. But there's a lot of companies out there, there's a lot of people out there that still stigmatize disability. They stigmatize challenges with mental health. During an interview process, if you know in your heart that you can do the job and that you've got the skills and the qualities that it would take to become a good employee for that organization, disclosing your autism diagnosis may very well hurt you more than help you. Now, once you get a job offer, if you know that you're going to be needing accommodations, disclosure is necessary before requesting and receiving those accommodations at work. You'll need to know what those accommodations are, 
that you need that can help you be more successful in your job. So you're going to want to read up a little bit on the ADA and what your protections are in that case. Disclosing during an interview is a real personal decision and you're really going to want to take into account if you're having struggles getting past the first interview, whether or not you should be disclosing. Disclosing your diagnosis may also have some negative consequences. It could cause you to be excluded simply based on your diagnosis. It might get in the way of finding work or advancing your career promotions, that kind of thing. And it may prevent you from ever knowing if your diagnosis or something else got in the way of you being hired, getting a promotion, or getting a new assignment. Too much emphasis on diagnosis if you're the kind of person who may overshare or go into too much detail, especially if you're nervous. That may distract from the discussion of your talents and your gifts and your abilities. Oftentimes, an employer may not know that much about autism and only what they've seen in the media. If they're a good doctor fan, that's how they might picture you. So if you're going to choose to disclose in that situation, you may want to come in after being hired with educational materials that can help your employer and the other coworkers or staff that you might be sharing with to understand it and know how to offer support. So those are really good pros and cons as far as employment goes. So I want to transition a little bit to just generally speaking about disclosure. If someone chooses to disclose in pretty much any setting, what questions should be important to them to ask first? So now we're getting into the point of the show where we've covered employment, we've talked about education, we've briefly covered medical and family and friends. But these questions we're going to be talking about now are specific things you want to ask yourself before you're ready to disclose. Issues of disclosure are closely tied to the concept of self-advocacy. If you decide you want to disclose your diagnosis, you need to ask yourself if you understand how autism pertains to you in your life. Are you able to talk about it and discuss how it may positively or negatively impact you, whether that be in work or school or a relationship? So that would be the first thing, that area of self-knowledge. The second thing, as you're looking to disclose and who to disclose to, would be why do you want that particular person to know about your diagnosis? Would your disclosure deepen an understanding and intimacy in a personal relationship? Would it strengthen your friendship or romance? Would disclosure possibly improve a professional relationship? What is the context of your relationship? And knowing this is going to help you determine at what level you want to share, potentially how much. How do you think disclosure will improve your interactions with this person? Is there something that you have in mind? Because without thinking through this question, this goal, you're less likely to achieve your desired effect. This should not be an impulsive decision. Are you prepared to ask this person to support you in a different way because of the new information of disclosure? If so, are you able to be specific with the person about what it is you need? For example, if you're hoping to better a relationship with someone you're dating and you're hoping that relationship will improve with the disclosure, it's important to be able to explain specifically how you were hoping that the person would use the new information. Because if you don't tell them, They might be unsure about the purpose of why you told them and how they can help. 
what are the risks of disclosing to this person? Big one. What are the risks? Now, we don't want you to get into a paralysis of analysis where you get so stuck thinking about this that you're never able to move forward. But if you're thinking about disclosing to someone you don't know well, such as a coworker or employer, anticipating their reactions can be difficult. So by exploring this question, it can help you plan for that possibility of a negative or confusing reaction and think of things that you might want to say if it doesn't go the way you initially intended. John, as you said before, you can't unring the bell once you've told someone. And different factors will come into play with this, both your age and their age, maturity factors, life experience. So sometimes there might be a way that you can partially disclose a need that you have related to your diagnosis without actually bringing that up. Sometimes that's a way to start to see whether that person might be someone that you may want to disclose to in more depth. Finally, what are the risks of not disclosing? What I mean there is if you don't disclose, will others pick up on the nuances of how autism impacts your behavior? And how might they interpret any quirks that are left unexplained? So if you're the kind of person who might rock back and forth or might vocally stim or pace back and forth, those are things to take into consideration, particularly if it's something that will likely end up happening in a work or a roommate type of situation. Things to think about on how you might want to explain that and if you feel you need to. Those are all great questions, and I think what we can do is post all of these questions also in the show notes for people as well. So I have one more question. What about tips on how to disclose? Practice, practice, practice. Hey, I heard that earlier, didn't I? (laughs) Yeah. So in that book that I mentioned earlier in the show, Been There, Done That, Try This, I was actually one of the autistic mentors who happened to contribute to the section on disclosing a diagnosis. And I also wrote an article in Spectrum Life magazine about that. And I'll include both of those links in the show notes. But practice, practice, practice was one of the suggestions that I gave. Because when you're disclosing something as personal and important as your diagnosis or how autism impacts you, it makes sense to practice the information that you share particularly if you're like me and you're the kind of person who has challenges getting what's in your head out of your mouth in an understandable way. I tend to make a lot of social faux pas. Perhaps some of you out there can relate. Take time to assess your thoughts and feelings about being on the autism spectrum, about being autistic. If you're at a point where you comprehend and are accepting of the differences which make you unique, it's easier to talk authentically about that and it helps other people respect and understand you. You're not apologizing for your autism. You're not apologizing for being autistic, but you're giving people reasons why certain things might be challenging for you or certain reasons why things might be easier for you. If you're not sure what to say, it's helpful oftentimes to write it out in advance. Then once you write it out, read it aloud. When you do that, did you convey what you intended? Did you give too much information? Did you give not enough? Do you know? (laughs) That's a hard thing to be able to figure out. But if you know, looking at that, that, oh, you know, I meant to disclose a couple sentences and I wrote a couple pages, 
or I just gave a sentence, hey, I'm autistic and didn't say anything else, that's not necessarily going to be the right amount of information. So the amount of information that you share will vary by person and by situation. One thing that's helpful is to role play your disclosure. If you have a trusted family member or a friend, someone on the spectrum, try it with them first. Then try it separately with someone who's not autistic. Ask each person to react to you in different ways, both positively and negatively, and then ask for their feedback afterward. Timing is also very important. You don't want to disclose your diagnosis during an argument. You want to try to be aware of the mood of the people with whom you're talking with. I know that's easier said than done. But you want to try to pick a positive time or a neutral time to share. After you disclose, realize that no matter what the result, your act of sharing was a gift from you and it was something of advocacy and courage. So give yourself credit for that. It's not an easy thing to do. It's never been easy for me. It does get easier over time, but it really does depend on the person you're trying to disclose to. So give yourself that credit and know we're rooting for you. You've got this. I have to just say, wow, the whole show was packed full of stuff again. And each time I'm amazed at what comes out of your mouth, then I'm blessed to be here with you. Before I turn this back over to you to close us out, I want to thank you. And I also want to thank our listeners for listening and also for subscribing. So I'm turning this back over to you now, Karen, to close us out. Thank you, John. I really appreciate you being here with me for this. This is not something that's easy to talk about. As an autistic adult, I've had to disclose so many different times in my life. I just feel for our listeners out there because it's such a vulnerable thing to go through. Disclosure of your autism diagnosis and how much to disclose is a personal decision. Disclosure may be a tool of self-advocacy and authenticity that you can use to deepen relationships and receive accommodations and support services. When used as a tool of advocacy and explanation, it can promote a positive attitude toward autism on the part of others and promote autism acceptance in our society. We all have the power within us to be ambassadors of autism acceptance. However, sometimes we may not be in a place where we're comfortable in our disclosure. That's okay. It's your journey, and when it's time for you to share, you have an autism empowerment community here to meet you along the way. We appreciate you hanging out with us and thank you for your time. You've been listening to the Autism Empowerment Podcast. If you'd like to get connected with our community as well as all the great support and content we have planned for the future, please hit the subscribe button and visit www.autismempowermentpodcast.org for show notes, transcripts, social media details, Spectrum Life magazine, and more. We provide these shows for informational and inspirational purposes. However, they're not meant to substitute for medical, legal, or professional advice. As a 501c3 nonprofit charity, we rely upon support from listeners like you to produce our podcast and other programs. We appreciate you leaving a positive review and considering a tax-deductible donation. Thank you again.